Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diadora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg. Currently worn by world number 26, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, world number 25, Jan Leonard Struff, world number 42, Martina Trevisan. See them at Diadora.com. But use my code APPROVED in all caps at HollabergSports.com for 15% off of all performance Diadora tennis shoes. Today's show is also brought to you by Vacation, the creators of the legendary Fall Boy Scented Candle, the official candle of the podcast of the Academy. It's made exclusively with Prince Tennis. You all know how much I love the fresh smell of a new can of tennis balls. The Fall Boy Scented Candle captures that exact scent and more. It is an awesome gift. It is a perfect gift, and it comes with a free tennis-scented air freshener. Head to vacation.inc and use my code SHAPIRO, in all caps, for 15% off of the candle. That's vacation.inc. My code is SHAPIRO, S-H-A-P-I-R-O, in all caps, for 15% off of the Vacation Ball Boy scented candle. He was the tennis writer for the New York Times from 2011 until 2022. His fearless reporting on the hot-button topics of our sport has been published in Slate as well as Racket Magazine, and he has appeared on CNN as well as the BBC. He is the host of the podcast No Challenges Remaining, and his biography on Naomi Osaka hits the shelves on January 9th. Ben Rothenberg is today's guest. Hang on now. Where are you? You in DC? I'm in Washington DC. Yes. You're in Washington DC, and you were somewhere else for Thanksgiving. Now you're back. What's the story this week? Next week? Yeah, I was up in Boston. My sister lives there. Thanksgiving was nice there. I drove through Rhode Island, which I know is uh, close to you. And then, uh, and then, yeah, I've been home home for pretty much all of December, and then leaving sometime first week of January for Australia. So going back there for just in time for the book to come out. So it's. Uh, it's a little bit of a calm before the storm, I, I think, this this current period. Gentlemen, you here was the longtime scribe for the uh, tennis scribe for the New York Times. He is the host of the podcast No Challenges Remaining, known to many as NCR, where he talks all kinds of tennis things with different luminaries and other writers and such. And he is also the host of i later learned and that's right yeah hang on what is that that that's that you're you're part of some subculture of trivia <laughs> yeah. uh geniuses gene genii or something is that right i am definitely the i don't even know what the analogy is for this i'm definitely whatever the third manning brother is of the family of trivia geniuses in that world um but yeah i i got into doing a lot of sort of trivia stuff during the pandemic much of like Zoom trivia leagues, a lot of which I still do. And Learned Leagues, actually, it's not a Zoom league. It's, I was on that for a few years before. It's a it's a trivia website, and they do daily trivia seasons about four times a year. And I started, I was, after finishing this whole book thing, I was sort of looking for some sort of fun, different non-tennis side writing project just to get my sort of brain working again and found it in this podcast. So that was, uh, that's been going, doing daily short snack size episodes on that. Daily short episodes of what you later learned after participating in learned league which is a trivia thing yes that's right this is ben rothenberg everybody ben rothenberg is back on the show great to see you good to see you too craig you spent the last year writing the biography of naomi osaka entitled naomi osaka that's correct yes naomi osaka it's it's about naomi osaka truth in advertising there full-blown that is what's going on we're going to talk about it all listen as you know we do a five-set format the first set is the off the court report are we going to see you back uh writing uh reporting on tennis is that happening at least a bit i mean i'm going to be in australia and so i'm going to be there for the entirety of the tournament i am going largely because the book is coming out there and i have an australian publisher it's coming out simultaneously on january 9th in uh, the U.S. and in Australia, and I think in Canada and New Zealand, too, I think are all on that same January 9th date. And so people can pre-order it both in the U.S. and in Australia now. Should pre-orders are very appreciated. Uh, and then after that, yeah, I'm going to be in Australia for the rest of the tournament, for the rest of the Grand Slam. And uh, yeah, doing I'm going to be going there for Slate, 
and I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure what comes after Australia. I have sort of not had too much vision uh, beyond this the book launch and the Australian Open so far. We're going to promote the book. We're 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 fluid talking about a uh, live podcast uh, book signing reading that's going to happen in Melbourne. Everyone's got to stay tuned for that. But are you are you going to be vigorously and actively promoting the book, feet on the street kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, at least virtual feet on the street, because I mean, so much of it, what I hear from people in publishing, so much of the old school book tours traveling around the country going to bookstores doesn't happen as much nowadays. Now it's more about doing podcasts, actually, are seen as a better way of, of finding targeted audiences of likely readers, very much like the, your show. I'm doing a hometown bookstore event uh, in my near Politics and Prose, which is a famous bookstore in D.C. near where I grew up. Uh, that'll be on February 10th. And I think that's the only major sort of thing I have booked so far. Now, when you go to Melbourne, will you, will you take some time and drive up to the beaches? Will you ever, I mean, because generally speaking, I only ever really seen you martyring yourself in the media centers. Like, I mean, you guys <laughs> go from the yeah. morning to the night, so hard and heavy, running in and out of press conferences, looking at all those screens. Now that you're not necessarily matriculating in that fashion, will you, I don't know, go do some more fun things? It's tricky. You know, it's actually tricky getting out of that gear because that's really how I came up doing it. It was like you said, was I'm there to work. I am not there for a vacation, even if it is, you know, Australia and it's lovely or Paris and it's lovely, whatever else it may be. And, you know, that's sort of how, how I operate and how, you know, a lot of my friends in my generation, you know, people like uh, Courtney and Reem and Tumani, I think all kind of came up in that same ethos, basically being there pretty much first ball to last ball every single day. And, and yeah, and until including till the last press conference, often after the last match and not really building in a lot of leisure time. I know in the earlier days, also back when there were fewer night sessions and things like that, that made the schedule less uh, daunting. You know, there are groups of certainly like the old school British writers, you know, who would make a point of going out to big fancy dinners on their newspaper expense accounts every night and stuff. And that was part of the tournament life when you were in Paris or Rome or wherever else it may be that you get to do those sorts of perks. And that was a great thing for them. And for me, you know, there's always the fear of what happens when you're not there briefly. And that happened to me most memorably pretty early on in my career. And this was very random and it's obviously a low likelihood thing, but I was in Cincinnati in 2013 and Marion Bartoli lost the second round match and then abruptly announced her retirement. And that was one of the very rare days when I actually had left site, you know, before the last, the other matches we looked at, they were not important matches, but out of nowhere, the Wimbledon champion just calls, calls game and, and says she's retiring at 10 p.m. on a sun, uh, Tuesday in Mason, Ohio. I mean, who could have seen that coming? So that was a bit chastening that moment. You got to be there if you're going to be doing that job. That is the job. I don't need to be doing it that way in the future, though. I mean, like, I, I wish I could learn the leisure life a bit better. <laughs> I wish I could, especially at this stage of not being there, you know, doing daily newspaper stuff. What you're talking about being there from first ball last it's similar when I was, you know, out in the field with, you know, the boxing 24-7, the seminal shows you know the one rule that we had where we were following these fighters during their training camps was you had to be in that gym and on that track for every single minute of every single day of that training because if the fighter broke his hand if he broke his nose if he got arrested whatever yeah. you if you missed it if you missed a minute of it you weren't doing the job listen let's move into the second set this is the On the Court Report. We're going to talk about the book in the third set because the book, I read the book. The book is outstanding. I love the book. We're going to talk about the book, but this is the On the Court Report. We're going to talk about all the hot button topics in tennis. We're going to go medium fast. Okay. Is the WTA on life support? Life support is tough to say. I, I do, obviously, down year for them, for sure. Rough year for them. And they've been dealt a tough hand. And some of this does relate to Naomi, actually, we'll get to in a bit. But just honestly, really, in terms of long-term clicking, since Serena actually got pregnant went on maternity leave, I think it's been, the WTA has not has had times where it hasn't found a very clear narrative that's lasted since then, since Serena, since sort of pack Serena and Serena ruled everything. There have been moments with Barty being on top, and Barty had her moments, but that abruptly ended. Uh, Osaka obviously had a lot of moments on top and was a big, big star for them, but she was vanished from the tour. And then, you know, since then, it's been, it's been, trying to find its footing. And, and there's some talent on tour for sure in terms of Sviantec and in terms of, uh, so I'm like, and I'm starting on court. I'm starting with the players. I do think 
this is important to the business part. I do think the, the tour does not get to control what the results are for the sport. And that is still majorly impactful for their bottom line. That like they got this lottery ticket win, theoretically, when they got a British uh, Grand Slam champion who is part Chinese in Raducanu. Amazing what that could do for those two enormous tennis markets. But then she basically doesn't uh, do anything close to that and has drifted off tour. Maybe we'll come back. That, those are things that WTA cannot control that really do have major impacts on their bottom line. Andrescu, yeah, too. Andrescu too. Yeah, Andrescu too, for sure. That's that's sort of where I think they've been just flat unlucky and they cannot control what happens and and who their who their champions are, and that's and that's tricky. That said, they have this um, the situation with putting the World Tour uh, their their Tour Championships year end finals in uh, Shenzhen, uh, which is supposed to be a ten year deal. And that really has been very slowly disintegrating uh, since the pandemic started, really. And it basically finally busted I think in April of this year. When they, only in April of 2023 is when they learned that Shenzhen was not going to come back to host this year's final and was out in that contract, was just dead. It was supposed to be 10 years. They only ever got one edition out of it. And so that has left them playing from behind. And they have not done a great job of telling their story in terms of explaining things, in terms of saying, here's what's happening. Here's why we are on a bit of a back foot and scrambling and doing anything to engender sympathy or understanding from, from players and fans. And they've really done a poor job of that, which makes them look more incompetent, bluntly, uh, when people just see them going last minute uh, for bids and stuff. And 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 this bid in Cancun, it didn't work out well. And yeah, it's a lot of, lot of different uh, messes that they've had. It's been a combination of, of, of some bad decisions and some bad luck. We had heard that they were going to announce playing that, that final in Saudi Arabia. And yeah. the the backlash like stirred up faster in the U.S. Open, and they pivoted very quickly and moved it to Cancun. I mean, that doesn't seem like a first world biggest sport in the world for women way to be. <laughs> no, th- those verdicts are fair. Like it's 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 totally fair for people to be unimpressed or dissatisfied with the current state of things. Uh, I'm just trying to peel back a bit of the sort of layers of it and sh- saying that you know they did have this the Shenzhen thing, which was. They thought possible going to be possible to host and get back on track for their very lucrative deal. When they still got announced in 2018, the to start in 2019, when it got announced in 2018, the women were making more, going to make more at the year-end championships than the men were. I mean, this was a huge, huge deal and a big win for money for the WTA and its players. That and Ash Barty won that tournament in 2019 and got a record check of I think 4.4 million, something like that, for winning wow. that tournament. Record all-time tennis prize money for a single event, men's or women's. I'm pretty sure. And and just in that and that obviously the double punch of the pandemic and the punk shui situation uh, rendered that rough. And you could say that WTA was playing with fire by risking, you know, partnering with China and, and what China represents. And obviously, even at the first edition, uh, they were using Shenzhen and the arena and the area around it to stage tanks and other military things to repress the, the protests in nearby Hong Kong. Right. So it was it wasn't great from the start, but then it got worse for them. So. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a big question in tennis. There's a lot of money there. The next-gen event that was just there for the men, actually, was interesting because it started off so empty. And then by the end, it was full. So I'm not sure how they filled the stadium, where they found these people to get in the stadium. But, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm still not sure about how all that's going to shake out. That was my second question. Do you have any feel for what this Saudi initiative is going to look like? I mean, I was looking to see, you know, the Ringling Brothers of Barnum & Bailey Circus at that event. And it was paltry, right? It was blacked out yeah. seats and a huge cord. It looked terrible. Yeah, look, I mean, by the end, I, I watched the first day and it was really grim. And then I saw a bit of the final between uh, Fis and uh, Medjedovic. And the crowd, again, the crowd was pretty full by the end. So they, I, don't, I, don't, I imagine they did some big effort to get people butts in the seats, whoever they were. And so that was that was positive. You know, I, I don't know what what in terms of show what they're going to put on because also there have been this previous exhibition event last year in Saudi Arabia with a lot of the top top men the Diria Cup and that was also brutally empty throughout I mean it was like less than 20 percent full for top 10 players playing in this in this event in Riyadh so um the, the current talk is that Saudi Arabia wants to get a Masters event and have it be in January before the Australian Open a combined event uh Tennis Australia will push back against that because that's their part of the calendar. Yeah, they have Brisbane and all these other they've owned the whole month of January uh in, in recent times uh, down in Australia. And that's been a very successful, I think, part of the calendar uh for players and fans alike in the Australian summer. So they push back against that. There's obviously limited space in the calendar, limited resources and some more bidders who want it. But yeah, it's it's interesting that I think ATP in terms of the moral qualms part of Saudi Arabia, which I haven't said overtly, 
kind of said that seems done and dusted by them going to next gen. Like they're kind of they're over whatever qualms they had, and that's a question for the women. And obviously, so many of the issues around Saudi Arabia uh, for critics of it regard women and women's issues and women's rights and things like that. So we'll see how they go. But but yeah, definitely there was talk about getting this year's finals there, but they just sort of punted on that. Didn't say no, but sort of just delayed. On Saturday, Arabia for this time. The Alexander Zverev saga uh, rambles on. Where is that at? So, as far as I know, so he was basically issued a penalty order. This is for the second accuser, uh, his more recent ex girlfriend, the one I did the reporting on. I reported on Olga Sharipova, and this is Brenda Patea. This is the mother of his child. Yeah. And she filed charges uh, against him, and the prosecutor decided to press those charges essentially and decided. This is different than the U.S. legal system, so still always having to learn some of the, the German system. It basically issued a penalty order, which basically kind of feels like it's similar to a plea deal, kind of like they gave him an opportunity to say, pay this amount and admit to this fine, and that can resolve it. And it was about a $500,000 fine uh, for him, and he is not admitting that he did it, and he's he's appealing that, and so that's going to, I think, go to court at some point in coming months. I don't know what the timeline is for when it makes it to court, actually. Though. And any statement from the ATP on any of this? Nope. Nothing. I have asked nothing. Nothing. No. And, you know, they said when they resolved the investigation into Olga's case, Olga's case was different in a lot of ways, including that parts of it took place near tennis tournaments, and also it was just much more around the world, whereas the Brenda case is a bit simpler in that it's a german accusing another german of something that happened in germany the jurisdiction is much clearer on that but they said in the in the olia resolution and i do think they knew about the brenda accusations being out there because a lot of people did before they got reported um and actually i'm pretty com- I'm confident they some some at least some of the atp knew about this they, there's a clause in the sort of statement they put out that sort of says insufficient evidence we couldn't find anything to who knows what their bar? And then I didn't say couldn't find anything. I said insufficient. And who knows what their bar was for sufficient? I mean, who knows where they were setting the bar in this investigation? But they said something like, "We will, we can reevaluate this if new information comes to light." Obviously, the Brenda situation is certainly new information, and we'll see what they do. But they've been they've been cowardly on this. They've been they've been pretty 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 embarrassing in terms of the sort of moral, uh, I think, imperative they should have to be better than they have been on this issue and to be clear mental and physical abuse in both cases correct i believe so yeah 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 yeah. mental and physical abuse yeah emotional abuse whatever whatever term they use yes emotional abuse okay yeah yeah what do we what can you tell us about our you know rafa's last stand this last tour around the sun he's smiling for our listeners he's got a a big (laughs) smile on his face I, I'm curious what he's going to say. I don't know what to say exactly. That's why I'm smiling. It's a nervous smile, maybe, because he's coming back, and he's coming back in Brisbane, actually same tournament as Naomi, as it happens. And we'll see. I mean, he is someone who, the thing about Rafa has been consistent. He's, he doesn't like to play when he doesn't think he can win, right? So he, if he's coming back, it must mean he feels good. Honestly, body language-wise, tone-wise, his comeback videos were not, like, the most happy-seeming. He seemed kind of grim in them. So maybe I'm wondering if he is doing this just as a pure like farewell, like I have to drag myself back out there or if he actually believes, I don't know yet. I'm getting mixed signals from him on that, just purely on the reading that that he leaves. There was a Instagram post where he is reading off a teleprompter and it was odd. It did seem a little bit less enthusiastic certainly than than the other ones. And, And so he wasn't really, he wasn't convincing, but at the same time, Rafa is not a reliable narrator in terms of his form. A lot of times he downplays his chances all the time yeah. and then surpasses the expectations. So he cons us into thinking that he, oh, he really won't win the French Open this year because he's, you know, lost to Shapovalov in Rome or whatever. And he's just <laughs> struggling and he's so low on confidence. And, and then he wins and makes everyone look silly. So definitely bet against Rafa at your own peril. Caveat emptor on Rafa Dow is when he's trying to sell you that you shouldn't believe in him in, in one way or another. Uh, yeah. Andy Murray's last stand seems like it's going to coincide with Rafa's last stand. Do you have any interesting information about this? Uh, information, no, I mean, except for that he did split with Lendl, which is public. I mean, people know that, that that partnership has, has has run its course and did not have really much success in this third time. I actually just did a whole podcast, podcast Murray Musings, a couple of diehard Murray fans. And I don't know if that's coming out yet, but it's coming out soon. Look, Andy's, it's been tough because he's had some good moments for sure and a lot of flashes and he was like the most compelling I think by far player at last year's Australian Open, his first round, his first week 
uh, series of matches were incredible and super gripping and he's super compelling guy in this way that not a lot of people in tennis have right now he has that and so that's a gift to the sport for sure but if you look at just purely results and i know he does on a lot of levels the slam runs have not been there since the hip replacement he hasn't made it to i think a second week of a slam uh since since the new hip so that's that's brutal and that's not of his standards and we'll see how much longer he wants to keep going he's already lasted longer than most anyone thought but he's ambitious too he's not satisfied with his current uh current altitude Tell you what, when he beat Berrettini at the Australian Open to kick off the to kick off the school year, uh, that was like one of the most exhilarating things I ever saw. With that said, he played his next match and ended at four o'clock in the morning. That became one of the big hot button topics of the of the tournament. It threw the tournament into disarray. Your thoughts about what happened and what's what's what these late nights and these crazy night sessions and this insanity that con- that continues to happen in the in our sport. Yeah, it's an issue increasingly across ma- tennis and matches and all year. We going all the way through Bear Sea, last tournament of the regular season, a big one anyway. Had a had a lot of late late finishes as well. Sinner had to pull out of his match because he finished you know, too late after midnight and then was going to play the next day in day session. Sinner Sinner quit the tournament, man. Because he couldn't, he, he he couldn't play. Yeah, which I respect him for 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 following through on that. Yeah, yeah, that's a problem in pro tennis, man. Come on. No, and and, and look, a lot of it comes down to just the the schedules being overpacked. Matches are getting slower. Certainly, best of best of five matches, especially, took take so much longer than they used to in the seventies and eighties. I don't think current fans or newer fans or younger fans, whatever it is, appreciate. They understand that previously, even a five set match almost never went over three hours. And now I think I look, I remember the stats. I looked at some point at the first Wimbledon semifinal or final that lasted more than three hours was very, very recent, whatever it was. It was something, you know, because tennis had been going on for more than 100 years there. But, you know, you'd have routinely have matches, five setters last less than two hours because guys just sort of lost the point, went out for the, the baseline and served again. And just the pace of play was much, much faster. And it's really slowed down. Um, and I don't think it's all for the good of the game. So, Obviously, there needs to be either some major reform. Obviously, putting fewer matches on a court is is a big thing. But for a night session, generally having two matches, whether it's on, at New York or wherever else, having a two match night session feels like a good number. I don't think you only have one. I think one one match sessions are very dangerous because if you have somebody roll an ankle in the, the third game and really really cheats people out of uh, a night of tennis, so it's it's tricky. But you know whether that's getting rid of best of five or whatever it is, that's my sort of token soapbox I have to give. <laughs> acknowledge in, the, in this conversation yeah i'm going to read my exact note that i have for my next uh, little stanza here sure. it says injuries berrettini lousy felix shapovalov nowhere curse of netflix take it as you may you know the netflix thing the netflix curse actually on paper is kind of real and it's actually hugely disappointing for the sport like i know it's kind of a jokey thing like a oh, netflix curse but it does hurt the sport to have people watching on Netflix and then not having those characters and those players available for them to follow in real time. You know, like one of the MVPs of the Netflix first season was Isla Tomjanovic, for example, she didn't play much at all. Kyrgios didn't play one match uh, this season. Go on through the list of the names he played. I mean, it really, all of them had down years and I don't think that it's related. I don't, I don't believe that Netflix caused it per se, but I do think it's unfortunate for the sport. I do think it's actually a real lost opportunity to have these players be uh, so invisible uh, and I don't know, I don't have any sense that Netflix grew the sport yet. That's that's a question I don't have the answer to yet. Hey, Badoza out of business. Sakari, yeah. terrible year. Sakari was actually maybe the best of the bunch. She made, I mean, she was like nine. So, but not, that's not a high bar, but she might've been the best of the bunch of the whole Netflix group. Her and Fritz. What do you say about Felix? This was a guy that we thought was going to be contending for majors, uh, seeing him play in Indian Wells a few, just a few years ago, man. Yeah, look, he he had a down year for sure. He finished better, at least. He he stopped the losing streak and he made a quarterfinal or semifinal in Basel to end the year, which was a bit of a high note after a really rough year. I watched him in, in Washington uh play. I didn't go to that many tournaments this year. I was finishing up the book, but I did go to Washington and he I watched him in from the stands lose to uh uh Watanuki, Japanese guy who was outside top hundred at the time. And Watanuki just looked like he had so much more confidence and swagger than Felix on the court. And it was really striking to see. So Felix, you know, the game is there. The technical parts all seem to be there. It just seems to be purely a uh, a, a mental thing or a sort of a, a drive thing or a 
whatever his focus thing is, he doesn't he doesn't have that sort of edge that I kind of look for in champions sometimes. I don't sense that consistently with him. And I hope that he can get a coach who can awaken that in him because as a pure athlete and, and talent and ball striker and technical player, he's he's very, very solid. But yeah, but sort of the 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 teeth aren't quite there and, and sometimes people are going to criticize this section for being so negative but we have to we have to acknowledge the year of novak was just something that is just totally an incredible oh yeah to have had a year of novak like this 36 years like what do you say about that ben i mean what is there to say i mean he was he was he was one set away from having won all four. Not that it, obviously pressure increases. I'm not giving him the calendar slam because pressure mounts exponentially as you get through New York. If you're going through the real, the real Steffi Graf kind of calendar slam, but he was, he was great. And what I think people really overlook, including myself. And I was trying to drum this home a lot as the year was wrapping up. Is he is so much older than the rest of the pack. He's like twice their age. Yeah, he's 36. Yeah. And turning 37 in May. Yeah. We're about, I'm I'm three months older than him. We're about the same age. Yeah. You know, and there's no one else in the top uh 10, certainly at the least right now. I don't know where Dimitrov finished, but definitely in the top 10, who's older than 28. So this whole generation of players, the sort of uh, you know, Dimitrov, uh Ronich, Nishikori generation, then even guys younger like Dominic Team, Lucas Pui, whoever was in that kind of range between who are gone or nowhere to be found. And it would be this whole brand new look tour, except for the fact that the number one guy and by far the best guy is still hanging around at 36. And he's kind of making increasingly seemingly easy work of it. I mean, he's so reliable and he seems to be, it, it doesn't seem challenged oftentimes. Obviously he doesn't win everything, but when he's, when he's playing well, he makes it look really easy. And it's really impressive because I'm sure it's not at his age. What were your um, observations of sort of Carlitos um, kind of petering out towards the back end of the summer, the back end of the year? I mean, I think it's understandable. He's he's still young. He's still getting his hang of the tour. I think his year finishing number two, again, is still a very strong year for him. And oh, he won Wimbledon. You, you Winning Wimbledon in a five-set final against Djokovic, that's the year. You're set. You don't need to do anything else. He did do a couple other things. He won what, Indian Wells and Madrid. He's fine. Like, I'm not – no panic buttons on him, but it's still – what the what the big four guys and Andy was in this pack for a while too. So I do like to include him when talking about the consistency I and mean, the way they were showing up every slam, every Masters event so reliably, uh, wire to wire throughout a calendar was really pretty pretty remarkable. Did we see a a resuscitation of Davis Cup or did I dream that? Did did that format? Did that did that scenario? Did that event? Did the tie in Manchester, England versus France, did all of that resuscitate Davis Cup? I don't know about the earlier rounds, but certainly the finals, the quarterfinals on where they were held in, in Spain and Malaga were definitely better. I mean, it, it did feel like it was kind of the, the vision that they had of the World Cup of Tennis and fans traveling in and good crowd attendance. And, I, and even, with, even without Spain even qualifying for the uh for the quarterfinals and the host not being one of the uh, competitors there. Um, see what like Finland did kind of a classic Cinderella story in sports that Finland coming out of nowhere to make the semis and filling the stadium with, with fins. That's pretty, pretty good. Uh, yeah. It seemed like a strong, strong week there. It's, and, and also the other thing that had, which Davis cup did not have, I think people really sugarcoat what Davis was cup was like before the, the restructuring, because it really was, I think a very hollow product oh. in the last several years and just, and just not the best players. It was not meaningful about who showed up and not really about who was the best tennis country. But in this, in this edition, we had an actual match between two very top players and Djokovic and center and center beating Djokovic in dramatic fashion. And then that leading Italy to the title. That's what you want from Davis cup. And that's something that I hadn't had in a long time. Uh, those kind of match between two top five players playing well. It was a, that was a, a treat for Davis Cup. So definitely trending in the right way. It's smaller. It's no doubt it's smaller than it was. But also, I think Davis Cup in a lot of ways, I'd say this was a, was a relic of the amateur era that kind of has, has, has struggled to find footing in the professional game when everything's so individualistic and about money. Davis Cup uh, was not a natural fit for that. It's been trying to, to find its footing ever since. Let's move into the third set. This is normally the portion of the show where we talk about your career big moment in your career we're going to talk about it you wrote the biography of naomi osaka fair to say unauthorized but with with some cooperation 
Yeah, it's interesting. There's kind of this binary of authorized versus unauthorized in the world of biographies. And I don't think mine fits cleanly the definition of either. It was with the cooperation of Naomi and her team, and, and they were very responsive and accommodating and a lot of times and and not at all hostile or whatever to the project, like a lot of times unauthorized means. And, you know, she was responsive, especially personally on like the fact checking parts that came near the end of the process, which was very uh, helpful and reassuring. So I obviously a huge interest in getting everything accurate and correct. And so that she was involved in checking things and confirming a lot of stuff and clarifying one or two things that didn't happen quite the way that I had been told they did. And so that was a huge help for her and, and from her team and, and her agent as well, Stuart, who you've had on your show. So, but at the same time, it's not fully authorized either because they did not get approval of the text. They did not ask me to write this book. This is this was my initiative. I have it was independently written in that sense. So it was, I think a pretty happy medium ground between authorized and unauthorized, probably closer to unauthorized, uh, but with sort of the uh uh, cooperation at times of of the subject and Naomi and her team. As I said before, I love the book. I thought you did a tremendous job. Thank you. My listeners know I tell it like it is, and and if I didn't like it, I would say so. Oh, I know. I, you are not. You are not. An, you are not an easy easy critic here at all. I know that. No, I'm vicious, and I have a stack of books that have been written about tennis that I am extremely soft on. Um, you know, there's a T-shirt that an old Apple computer T-shirt that says something close to it's hard to dislike someone once you learn their story. And that's how I felt about this book. Um, mm -hmm. I also felt like that it could have been titled The Education and the Miseducation of Naomi Osaka. It was almost like an anthropological study of a of a biracial kid that becomes the greatest athlete in the world. Well, I, I like hearing that works. I was an anthropology major in college. So uh, that is cultural anthropology. That was a bit of my background. I actually did take a class on, um, have, as it happens, race and ethnicity in Japan. It was one of the classes I took in uh, in college. So that's nice to, nice to hear. Mostly Eastern European stuff, which has come in handy in tennis too. But yeah, I did do that. I don't want to spoiler alert the book and, 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 and break out all the kind of minutia that makes it interesting. But you did a, you, 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 you research hard. What what was the thought when you began the project? Did you behave like a a student writing a thesis? Did you behave like a twelve year old writing a book report? How do you rock? I mean, it was just before I just made, wrote the proposal for it. It was a lot of looking online and seeing what I could find, especially about her early life, and I did find some interesting stuff for sure that I had not really known about or appreciated the depth of it before. And then also there was a huge. I knew there was a huge lack of knowledge or, or chasm compared to certainly a lot of the famous players, you know, people like certainly the Williams sisters, obviously, let's say most obviously, right? They have been mythologized by the press, by their father, certainly, by the, for the time they were young children and they were covered very extensively. I've said this a couple of times about the book already, but Venus was on the cover of the New York Times, front page of the New York Times when she was 11 years old. Like people saw them coming, documented their lives very closely, scrutinized their lives at times, and and certain investigations were sometimes poking holes in their story a bit and whatever it was. Naomi was very, very different in that she was really a pretty unknown quantity until the 2018 U.S. Open, largely, um, in terms of the details of her story. Uh, there was a New York Times magazine cover story. Uh, they did a bit right before that tournament, and then she won the tournament, obviously, too. But she was rocket launched into this huge orbit of stardom. Uh, by the U.S. Open win and by everything that happened in that final with Serena and the controversy around Carlos Ramos and everything there. And I think since then, she's kind of kept accelerating in fame without people really uh, doing much effort to fill in the gaps of, of her story. So I, I think hopefully that's what this book achieved is giving a lot more clear continuity of showing some some lines that run through her her life that explain things that happened later on. No doubt. And, and you know, it's like, you know, every everything is an indicator, how the dad meets the mom, how they get to the states. What did you learn that impacted your writing? Because you didn't just lay it down like in 2000, you know, this happened and then this happened. You, 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 you threaded a coming of age story of a, of a young woman who becomes somebody, someone special. I think what I said, just sort of finding things in her early life that explain things that happened later on. And a lot of that, especially is about her her childhood and, and things that 
is hearing from from her just going through basically every quote she's ever said and talking to her a bit obviously as as through the book as well um and press and whatnot and 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 talking to you know Mari her sister as well and, and hearing things about their childhood and about how you know the sort of isolated lives they lived growing up and and very sheltered uh from the outside world and this very tunnel vision tennis pursuit their family was on taking them out of normal schools at a, at a young age and moving down to florida and really betting it all on this on this long shot long shot dream and and, and being broke being dead broke yes absolutely that was one of the first things actually i found um i can say as i was doing the research is kind of standard reporter thing you know going to like florida public records websites and and seeing and i knew there was a lawsuit i know about the lawsuit that was there from from their former one of their coaches who they didn't pay that contract with it's it was reported a little bit back then but it goes into more depth in the book about that whole story I and mean, people have had strong reactions to reading that story when uh, people have talked to you about it before uh but also in there i found uh documents from when they got evicted from their apartment um you know around around 2014 and seeing seeing the timing of that um uh right before Naomi made her her tour debut and being able to connect those dots it was like less than a month i believe roughly a month rather from when they got eviction notice from their apartment uh that they just couldn't they weren't paying for um and to when she made her tour debut in Stanford and beat Samantha Soser and seeing that this like real financial peril brought out this new level because Naomi is ranked 400 something in the world at this point but that that emergency that urgency she had brought out something really superhuman in her and and led her to beat Samantha Soser who was a recent U.S. Open champion at that point uh, at a WTA match and won ten thousand dollars in prize money which was hugely crucial to her family and also got the interest of sponsors and and agents and stuff like that I mean it was a big big deal and, and that that's something I feel like I was able that wasn't reported before that that that's one of the new things in there for sure. I thought that was sort of like a cute part of the story was the way I kind of read it. And maybe I'm a little too close because I do poke my nose in and around the media centers and such. But all you quirky cats in the center were were enamored by her and her quirkiness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You thought that she was something exciting, like Courtney says, you know she's the star of the she's the star of the show like this is yeah. i can't wait to get her back in the room like that was really interesting to me that you all had like become enamored by her reem and and, and all all of y'all that are in there from morning to night look i think that i think you mentioned us being there we started the show by talking about the long hours working there and i do think we see things earlier and ahead of people who are who are more part-time or more casual about stuff a lot of times i mean like i'll say like i was very early different but like on the yannick center bandwagon for example when he was still way down the rankings and i was sort of already super high on his supply of in terms of what he had as a player and, and just everything and he's and he's borne that out now and Naomi was definitely the same courtney yeah courtney i was in washington stanford and washington are the same week of the calendar and so i was in washington she was in stanford she sees naomi uh beat Stosin and come into press and completely disarms everybody and it's totally unexpected and they didn't know honestly that you know Naomi Osaka parentheses JPN as a Japanese player would even speak English because a lot of times the Japanese players don't speak much right. English at all and aren't comfortable right. with it and so right. Right. they didn't know anything about her story at that point and and so she emailed me um, I think probably as soon as it ended the audio of the transcript of the uh, press conference rather from from uh Stanford with the with the subject line like you got to listen to this uh in the email saying because she was just yeah. so struck immediately by Naomi's personality and was and we put that actually that audio on NCR that week back in 2014. Um so we were very and that was well well before she was top hundred and then yeah I wrote a profile of her for the New York Times which is what this book opens with actually my first time meeting her at the 2016 Australian Open when she makes her first Grand Slam main draw. And went a couple rounds there. Yeah, yeah, we definitely were early to it. And we saw something special both in the personality and in the in the on court. Yeah, and then eventually the, the world caught up. Certainly soon enough, once it became real headline making wins. But but it also was foreboding that she was quirky and that she was emotional and that she was battling with these depression issues coming off of events and and and, and you know you've been criticized uh, on on the record and off the record for being. Um, People have said to me that they thought you were very protective of her in your writing for the Times and for things. Um, was it? Would you disagree? I certainly was less harsh to her than some people, for sure, because I knew her better. And I thought there was a lot of unfair sort of ad hominem stuff that came at her at various times, absolutely, from the press at large. And certainly I was on the I think I don't think it came from being 
overtly protective most of the time. I think it came, and there were certainly times when I was disagreed with what she did or was annoyed by what she did. Certainly the French Open media standoff, I didn't think she she launched particularly well um, in terms of the statement that wound up putting a lot of heat on the general media and stuff. I didn't think that was right. When she zinged that notes, <laughs> she zinged a uh, thing in notes saying, hey, I'm not going to the press conferences. And yeah. she, and it was even just less about the press stance and more about just sort of saying that people didn't care about her well-being, whatever they thought was unfair. Um, and she has since sort of apologized for that and said she could have handled that better. And and she was yeah. obviously not in a great place mentally when she made that that statement and, and so on. So I, I don't hold that against her anymore. That's That's under the bridge, obviously, at this point. But there were certainly times when, you know, when reporters... Um, and honestly, this goes with the Williamses too. And it's a, a largely older than me, uh, equally white to me, press corps, equally male to me, press mm-hmm. corps, uh, who often was not super fair, or super understanding, or super sympathetic to Serena, to Venus, and to Naomi certainly followed in that path as well. And people just found whatever she did for whatever reasons distasteful or found reasons that, you know, often coded or dog whistle, whatever it may be. Um, to have objections to her. And I, I think that I certainly was not part of that. I don't think I, I so yes, there are times certainly there was a spectrum of how things were happening, but I don't think it came from, it didn't ever really consciously come from me of a desire to be protecting her or, or, or doing things that, you know, um, were over the top, you know, I was just trying to be, for me, it was my version of being fair. Well, listen, man, you're in Dubai, you're in all these places and you're seeing her cry. I mean, at, at one point, she sheds tears in press conferences like over and over and you're reading it and it it really like it really is yeah is 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 it's tough to read you know this is a young woman that's you know been in a lot of pain again it has to sort of make you you know make you sensitive to the situation like because some people just show up for the back end of Wimbledon yeah, or the or the middle of the French, and they haven't seen what you've seen. Yeah, look, I think in terms of compare, and this is something Naomi says too. Um, that she says it's quoted in the book as well about talk sort of, you know, looking back at the French Open and what happened there and what her thoughts were on it. That she talked about and she did an interview with uh, a podcast with Allison Felix actually earlier this year where she she talked about it a bit, um, and it's quoted in there where she was saying um, that she that she had this very sort of friendly, I think. Uh, core people we have no reason not to be friendly uh people like me and courtney and raymond tumani uh that's core, sort of core people who were at her press conferences and who liked who showed an interest in her and found her appealing well before she had the results to really justify super close constant uh uh coverage and also the japanese reporters who were with her were also i think across the board pretty pretty kind to her uh deferent and very respectful i mean it's a pretty good press score uh, to work with for the most part for sure um uh, for a young player to come up through, I think it's one of the one of the generally broad strokes, one of the better ones you can can deal with, uh, certainly compared to some other markets. Um, and so, but when the pandemic happened, especially, and when things shifted to remote press conferences and video press conferences over Zoom or whatever software they were using at a given tournament, and at the same time she was hitting new fame through all her activism, Black Lives Matter stuff, and then she started seeing more and more unfamiliar faces. You could there was no longer a barrier entry, even just to have to fly and go to you know. Credentials, you could you could sign up to go to any tournament, be in any press room with a click of a mouse from for any sort of paper or tabloid, whatever the motives of the reporters might be. And so that made it much more uncomfortable for her. That's a big part of what made her start balking at, at media stuff uh, in 2021, which is sort of seeing the composition of the room change and feeling like she was less comfortable and people who were there were were more antagonistic possibly or just that she didn't know and didn't didn't trust in the same way that she had built up with uh kind of the core tennis reporters over, over the years well listen you did the work i you know when i was going through the acknowledgments at the back end i saw that you had cited a hype beast uh chinatown event we i i actually was at that you were at oh yeah the, in, the, in the notes yeah 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 and you had recorded that you um you really did the work. You put your feet down. You were at everything you could be. Was there ever a moment where you wanted to quit? Was there ever a moment you thought you were doing <laughs> bad work? Was there ever a moment you thought that the book was going to be shit? Was there ever a moment that you wanted to stop? Not quit or stop or no, but certainly, yeah, there are moments of not, maybe not shit, but certainly moments where I wasn't happy with it, was frustrated with it. Absolutely. I think every writer has that. And I definitely had that for a long time. And a lot of that, 
was um, just I, I got the deal to do the book in November 2021. Um, and I was on a bit of a hiatus, but coming back the next year um, and was going to I was my plan was to follow her all through 2022, including that hype piece event you mentioned. That was a 2022 event before the U.S. Open. So I went most all tournaments she went to didn't want to go into every single one, but most of them. And she wound up having a really down year a mediocre year honestly results wise by her standards and largely absent she missed a lot of tournaments she didn't play Wimbledon she pulled out of Rome where I went to she pulled out of Berlin where I went to she pulled out of uh or she lost first round in in French Open and U.S. Open and stuff so there was a lot less material a lot less time with her she lost first round of Cincinnati didn't do press afterwards when I went to Cincinnati so there were some frustrations that happened um you know along the way for sure um but at the same time you know I, I, the, the pregnancy that happened from, from her, the news of that, as we were trying to get the book together and really wasn't clear what her direction was going to be in terms of her career. I think that actually uh, gave a good amount of clarity to the sort of end of the book, which had been the big sort of amorphous thing that I had, didn't feel like I had a good handle on for, for a long time writing about what the end of the story was going to be. But I do think it's actually, you can tell me if you agree or not as a reader, that a relatively clean ending spot to, to end on uh, in this moment. So that was uh, helpful from Naomi for sure. Do you have any interesting information um, about her return? Well, actually, I don't think it's in the version of the book that you would have gotten even. But okay. since then, in the final version, I did do a long interview with uh, Winfacet, her coach, who had been her coach uh, and then parted with her in 2022. And, uh, and that's been the sort of last update of the book. Uh, the interview with him is in the epilogue, basically, and talking about the reasons he had for being won back over to her after having his doubts about her motivation and her direction in 2022 like a lot of people did honestly in 2022 and and why and how she won him back and and what he's excited about uh, in her progress and all accounts from everybody i'm hearing from the training's been going really well um confidence is, is high i mean obviously not saying she's going to return and win everything immediately but certainly things are trending the right way and they're feeling good this short version of that and you know you what you you alluded to this moment in time where she had what she thought was like this like you know seventh gear where she could just focus in and just not lose and and that's yeah. that that ended that the, the players got too good she didn't do the work she got hurt she yeah. battled achilles and she had so you know one of the things that i want to i want to share and, you, and tell me what you think um reading the book reading the 423 pages of that <laughs> book made me realize how what a disservice we're doing ingesting all of our information on x knee twitter that mm -hmm. when we're when we're taking these bite-sized chunks of information and we're just sort of snorting them down and and then we're then we're fighting and we're arguing and then we move on to the next thing and then the player says something and calls you it's not it's not good enough and what you did by taking it all and, and and putting it all together really crafts a, yeah, like I said, an anthropological study of a biracial young woman who finds her Japanese-ness and then finds her Haitian-ness and then finds her tennis and finds her voice and, and, and messes it all. Like, it's a wild story, man. When you put it all together, Twitter don't do it justice. None of that. Oh, God. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, 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 I really do appreciate that because doing something that gets to be this, this whole and this complete is very satisfying because so much of it is quick take and so much of it is, is just, you know, popping off short term stuff and getting, being able to have the privilege to get the, the deal to do this book that gives me more time um, and space to write. Because I honestly, I really want to do the book is wanted to write about Naomi, but also feel like I wanted to do a deeper dive. And the book was the format that let me do that justice and you mentioned yeah the book is i think it's a i've been told by people i think, hope you agree that's a fairly quick read for given how long it is in terms of page like number um but that great read it's a great read you gotta put your head down and read that that's a great read thank you so yes that it's uh yeah that it is able to uh to show things in just a more complete way and step back and give context and talk about japanese cultural context and and what was going on in, in summer 2020 in terms of black lives matter all that stuff and and yeah, and, I, and the book could have been longer too, I'll be honest. There's lots of stuff that I could have gone on to different tangents about in terms of histories of athlete activism and stuff like that, That and more history of the Williams sisters that I, I didn't give the full, full deep dive into that like I could have. The book could have been 
at least 100 pages longer, but had to uh, mercifully uh, cut some stuff. So you got to be ruthless <laughs> in the edit. That was a challenge, yeah, for sure. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I'm just going to say it. You say what comes in your mind. We go quick. You ready? Yep. Yep. The most interesting story of the year. I'll honestly say, I'll say Djokovic. I mean, it, it's sort of just seeing seeing both two couple things on obviously him winning and being this huge age that he is way above everybody else. I already mentioned that. And then also kind of this evolving current persona he has where it's not, he's not beloved. He's still not. And that's more interesting to me than if he was, because it's this complicated relationship that he has with the public, that his, you know, that people, the, the begrudging nature of some of the respect sometimes that he gets, but also if you're still watching tennis in 2023 in men's tennis, you have to, le- you have to learn to appreciate Djokovic on some level or be miserable because he wins everything. So seeing that is, 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 uh, I think it's still fascinating. The most interesting story that went under the radar. Brandon Nakashima, uh, who won the next gen last year, actually, and, and had a really rough 2023 after everybody else had been able to use uh, that title as a real springboard to pretty immediate success at the ATP level. He had a hit of down year. So that's under the radar for sure. I think it qualifies as that. Brandon Nakashima had a lousy year. The most interesting player that went under the radar, women. I don't know under the radar she is, but I I remain fascinated on a certain level by Ostapenko and seeing what she can do, beating beating uh, Shvantec at the U.S. Open, but also people who know not being surprised by that win, sort of mythos around her uh, and, you know, match with the clothing. I think she's a fascinating character. I was behind the court low for that match. Uh, Ostapenko beating Sviantec at the Open in that night session was something to see. And, and, and all year she was like, sort of destroying players like just she, she she found her way again in a way just hot and cold but when it's on it's so on it's incredible how about the men is there an interesting player for you that went like way under the radar i mean he was got his he got his one of the best stories of the year in men's tennis i think is uh eubanks chris eubanks who was certainly on radar at points and he made the wimbledon quarterfinal i'm not sure if that qualifies as under the radar but seeing him come from being a well-known person just for his sort of personality and his, you know, especially WTA actually done a lot of work as a hitting partner for Naomi, actually for Coco golf, for Serena. Um, but to see him first of all, make this run in just the top hundred in Miami when he qualified for there for that tournament uh, or maybe, you know, a run there to get top hundred for the first time. That was already a fairy tale for him. And then to completely launch exponentially further than that into Wimbledon quarterfinal beating Sitsipas on the way. He was, he was awesome. So he won Mallorca. Mallorca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he won five matches in Mallorca. Then he won another four. It wasn't a fluke. He was just good. I mean, the tennis was, was so good. so I mean, good. The serve was good. He, he Playing grass court tennis the way it's meant to be. Medvedev had to play really well uh, to beat him in that quarterfinal. That was a, a great run for him and one of my favorite stories of the year for sure. I thought Yuri Lehechka went under the radar. He started strong, started strong. Didn't do too much the second half, but started strong for sure, Lehechka, yeah. Who is Zuzana Andraskova? <laughs> Zuzana, I'm curious where you found that. Uh, Zuzana Andraskova, it was a Czech tennis player um, who I had sort of a, a cult following for as a uh, guest from like in high school, maybe in college. Um, and like one of my old usernames on one of the tennis message boards was about her. Um, and yeah, so I had a, I had a friend um, in high school who who was had a uh, girlfriend named uh, Zuzana. So I sort of latched on to uh, to her when I saw her in a draw, it became sort of a, somewhat of an inside joke, and I did wind up watching her a bunch of like slam qualities and stuff, and became genuinely a uh, fan and supporter of, of Susanna's. Who is she, and what what happened to her? She was a Czech tennis player. I mean, she she I think she got up to a high of I don't know the seventies, probably in the rankings. Okay. Uh, she was not bad. One sort of one of the ranked file checks, a lot of challengers and stuff, and she made a second round of a slam a few times. Um, decent player for sure. Uh, yeah, retired now. I think I was. I think she played her last match in Australia a few years ago. Um, but yeah, I hope she's well. I haven't heard about her in a while. How are you feeling about tennis today? Pro tennis? It's a 10 ball scramble, man. I ask you, you got to just say what comes to your mind. <laughs> I feel good. I think that the, I think the sport itself has just remained compelling. Like in, you know, Tibani and I were on my show talking about Davis Cup and he was saying, and I agree, like, you know, tennis is just great. Like, you know, it's the, the watching two people compete against each other in tennis remains super compelling. And that part has not ebbed at all, even if it's a bit of a more anonymous uh, era at the top in a lot of ways, the men's day women's um, uh, that we've been going through and maybe getting out of, hopefully. I think I think sport itself is, is fantastic. So watching tennis 
hugely fan of it still. You know, I feel like maybe five or six times this year, I must have said, man, this is the greatest tennis match we've ever seen. And then, you know, that Cincinnati final of Novak and Carly, because when, you know, when 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 uh, Rybakina played Sabalenka in that final in Australia, I was like, man, this might be the greatest level of match I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. then uh, then during the Cincinnati final, one of my close buddies who who knows the sport well, very well. And he said, man, this might be the greatest best of three set match that's ever been played. And I was like, oh, wait, you know what? I think you might be right. And then sure enough, it was it was arguably the greatest best of three set match that's ever been seen. What a year. It was the best. Cincinnati for me, it was five men's time. It was the best match of the year. Pretty easily. Yeah. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis, you could make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket with no aggravation. What would it be? I want to see a real reconsideration of doubles and what doubles does to the sport. I think doubles is in a position that's not sustainable right now. It's too many doubles specialists. It's it's not it's not driving audiences or interest, and it is expensive for the sport, and it screws up scheduling. And I was saying this as I was watching uh, the next-gen finals. They don't have the doubles alleys in the court. It's a singles-only event. And and saying, you know, it'd be nice, actually, just to get rid of the doubles alleys on major courts because you don't – doubles is not on TV. It's not a meaningful part of the product anymore. So unless you're going to do something major – like change, for example, men's uh, singles grand slams to best three to make it no longer physically prohibitive to play doubles or do other things. I just think I think doubles is in a really uh, weak spot. And I think it's also a huge uh, money loser for the sport in terms of how many people, uh, in terms of players that the tournaments have to uh, host and facilitate and uh, uh, house and feed and all this sorts of stuff um, for a product that really isn't delivering on any sort of viewership level and just not engaging the public. So um, that's harsh in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of doubles specialists and players who I have a lot of respect for, but I just don't think it's been success as a product. And I don't think the sport is thinking about it in a clear-eyed business way about what doubles actually mean to the ecosystem of tennis in its current form. So I'd like to see a kind of reckoning with uh, with doubles right now and either fix it or or do something to scale it back because right now it's it's not working. Hey, man. Always a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in Australia. How does one order your book? Pre-order your book. How does that? Is there a, is there a hardcover? Is there a paperback? Is there an ebook? What is what's the story with the book? Yeah, so certainly uh, U.S. right now it's hardcover and also ebook and audiobook. Actually, you can pre-order all those hardcovers are actually preferred for what it's worth for pre-sales and getting bookstores to be enthusiastic or interested in the book and stock it. Pre-sales are themselves are a huge help if. You have any interest in the book, get it sooner rather than later. It really is very appreciated by authors and publishers and alike to to let people know out there there is interest. You can pre-order at your local bookstores as well. Obviously, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, whatever it may be, Target has it. One thing I'm going to say I loved about it, I loved that it was the first time I'd read a book where you quoted the Twitter accounts of fans. You quoted the podcasts of some of the subculture we 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 have including your own your your, your shows in the book too yeah yes i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna um so <laughs> i'll say it. i wasn't gonna I'll say, it. I'll, say it. I'll say it for you you did interviews with both sasha Bayan and stewart Dugid that that were helpful so thank you for that but I, it was interesting to 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 read the words that were captured by some of the people that like hover around the the corners of the sport. I thought it was interesting to see that. Was was your intention to go dive down all those roads from the beginning? Because the fact of the yeah. matter is, the social media is where the information flies. It's a, it, absolutely yes. That was a goal and a challenge, also too, because I don't. You cannot write a book about Naomi Osaka without having an understanding of social media and an ability to sort of index it in some way that makes it processable for the book. I mean, she, of her generation and her as a person, also individually, social media is where it all happens. And a lot of that was tough, actually, just from a pure research method kind of, uh, uh, you know, technique kind of point of view. There's a lot of stuff on her tweets at certain times were deleted. She, you know, especially Instagram, she deletes all sorts of Instagram posts. And it's kind of a Gen Z thing to delete your social media at various times. And so uh, some of that was tricky. And seeing other stuff there was had to do a lot of sort of, you know, web archive kind of stuff and finding old caches of, of uh of pages and such, but yeah, yeah, talking to you know, doing like other podcasts, body Surf podcasts is certainly quoted in the book. Uh, your show, NCR is quoted a couple right. of times. Other some other stuff as well. Um, 
in there. And yeah, and some Twitter users, there's a, a Twitter user, a Bulgarian uh, kid named Krasimir, who's quoted in there, who's gotten kind of a tiff with Naomi at some point over her sister. So, and then also traditional reporting, you know, like I found like the first opponent she ever played when she was seven years old, that kind of thing. So all of those sorts of different layers of of different methods I found very uh, satisfying and I'm glad they paid off. It seems like for you as a, as a reader. Hey, it was great. We'll see you in, geez, I think we're, uh, I think, uh, I think uh, preseason training has begun for all of us. We'll see you in Australia in uh, six weeks or so. Ben Rothenberg, you are released. Thank you, Craig. Huge thank you to Ben Rothenberg. And thank you to Diodora. Use my code APPROVED in all caps at hollabirdsports.com for 15% off of all Diodora Performance Tennis Shoes. Huge thank you to our other sponsor, Vacation. Once again, get the perfect holiday gift for any tennis lover with Vacation's Ball Boy scented candle. You know I love a candle. Available now at vacation.inc for 15% off with my code SHAPIRO in all caps. That's vacation.inc, and my code is my last name. You get 50% off. It is a tremendous, tremendous gift. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.